In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to talk about the theological virtue of love. And especially we're going to focus on Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical from 2005, God is Love, Deus Caritas Est, about the relationship between eros and agape, earthly love and heavenly love. Uh, So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And in this episode, we're going to be completing our series on uh, the theological virtues. Um, so I have been doing um, the theological virtues, and Mickey and Deanna over on Life Beyond the Chariot have been doing a series on the cardinal virtues. So this uh, this time we're going to be focusing on the theological virtue of love. So we have an ep- we've had an episode on faith already, one on hope. This is the one on love, and the basis for the conversation today is going to be Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical Deus Caritas Est, or God is Love, which was his first encyclical. Uh, it was released in 2005. Um, so, at, at the outset, we want to say that um, the reason uh, that, that we're finishing with love is because, really in the theological tradition, like faith is important, so is hope, but the greatest of these things, St. Paul says, is love. Faith, hope, and love remain. The greatest of these is love. Um, so hopefully, the, the previous episodes on faith and hope have kind of built us and prepared us for this discussion on love today. So I want to start with just uh, a recognition of the, the simplicity and the centrality of love in the Christian tradition from the scriptures, which really, if we wanted to, we could just do a whole episode on that. Uh, but I'm really just going to kind of follow Benedict's plan here. Um, so he starts by saying, St. John, in his letter, the first letter of St. John, uh, teaches us this very fundamental truth that God, in fact, is love. So in the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 16, we see that God is love. And Benedict notes that St. John also teaches us that we have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. And so there's this fundamental thing at the, at the beginning of, of his encyclical that I think will help us to understand this virtue, is that God actually is love, like, that's, that's the, the root identity of who God is. Who and what God is, it's love. And we believe in the fact that God loves us. So it's who God is in himself, and it's something that he gives to us. He pours out love on his people. And there's another point also in the first letter of St. John that we love God because he first loved us. So there's there's a sense in which love is God's identity, and it's what he pours out towards us, and because he's given it to us, because he has loved us, we then have the capacity to go out and love others in return. So there's a real sense in which we wouldn't be able to actually love others 
if we hadn't first received the love that God gives us. It's because of God who is love and who does love us that we have this basic capacity to love others. Um, but, you know, in order to get into to a real good conversation about the, the virtue of love, we have to get into some some definitions and talk about what love is. So there is a, a theological definition of love that's that's very popular. It's St. Thomas Aquinas, John Paul II loves to use it, that love is willing the good of the other, right? So so love is, to, is caring for another person so much so that you prefer their good to your own. Um, so in human relationships, to really love means to prefer someone else's good, to prefer what is good for them, to will the good for them, even if it's not necessarily going to benefit you. Um, and, and sometimes it, it may be, you know, harmful uh, in a certain sort of way. Like they may have to, you know, you may love someone and they've got to go take a job that's going to move them to another part of the country and it's your best friend and you're not going to get to see them anymore. But you love them, you hope that that's, that that's going to work out well. So love, one way of defining it is it is willing the good of the other. Pope Benedict um, talks a, a lot, I mean, the whole encyclical is about the idea of love and what it means, and he says one of the things that's so important uh, in, our day, in our world today is that we have to clarify what it means. So when we say God is love, okay, that's important, but when we say God is love, like, what what kind of love is that? What does it mean for God to be love? And if He loves us, how and in which in what way um, does He do that? Um, so He says that there's there's this is really important because in our contemporary culture we use the word love in all kinds of ways to refer to all kinds of different things, and it's true I think especially in English. Other languages have. Um, different ways of saying love, and, and depending on which verb you use, it expresses something a little bit stronger. In English, we just, we love everything, and uh, it kind of cheapens the, the idea because we use the same word for so many things. And actually, Pope Benedict gives us examples. So this is the second paragraph of the encyclical, and he says, we need to, to be aware of all the different ways which we use the word love. So he says this, he goes, we speak of love of country, Love of one's profession, love between friends, love of work, love between parents and children, love between family members, love of neighbor, and love of God. And he says, amidst this multiplicity of meanings, however, one in particular stands out, the love between man and woman, where body and soul are inseparably joined and human beings glimpse an apparently irresistible promise of happiness. This would seem to be the very epitome of love. All other kinds of love immediately seem to fade in comparison. So we need to ask, are all these forms of love, talking about country, profession, work, friends, all that stuff, are all of these basically one? So that love in its many and varied manifestations is ultimately a single reality? Or are we merely using the same word to designate totally different realities? And he says, this is what we've got to really think about. And, it, and it's really interesting, and he, and he drives this, this analogy throughout, especially the first half of the encyclical. The love of man and woman, right, the love of marriage, uh, which, which is physical as well as intellectual, right? So it's the whole person, the body and soul are united, you know, in, in, the, in the marital act. 
that that seems to be on earth sort of as close as we can get to this this absolutely pure vision of love, right? That it promises this sort of um, unending happiness, but he even says it's even that is only a glimpse into what it means to say that God is love, but that certainly Benedict wants to say the the love of spouses in the you know expressed in the marital act that is a far greater form of love than than how most people might love their country or their work. Um, I really do love the the work that I do. I feel like really really blessed to, to have the job that I have, and I, I really love my work. I think there's plenty of people though that you know might love their work in an intellectual sort of way because they need it, and if they didn't have their work, it would be pretty hard for them to survive. Uh, but that they would rarely describe, oh, I love my work in a, in a way that competes with or rivals the way I love my spouse. And so Benedict wants to say, we've got to really think about these different human, human expressions, human experiences of love, uh, because they're good and they can help us to kind of get an idea of what it means when we say that God loves us or that God is love. So it's, it's kind of through our human loves that we can understand the far greater way in which God loves us. And this is just sort of a, a basic principle of philosophy and theology. That, you know, when you're making an analogy between two things, um, the, the uh, similarity is always going to be smaller than the dissimilarity. So to say God loves us and God is love, and we can understand a little bit of what that means by saying, like, well, it's kind of like how a man might love his wife. That's, I mean, that really isn't actually that similar, but it's sort of the best we can do. It's the best we can grapple with to give us a sense, a sort of a, a hint at what it means to say that God is love. So um, in the encyclical, Benedict talks throughout about a, a lot of important philosophical and theological ideas about the nature of love. And again, the, the root of this all is this is who God is. He is love, and he gives love to us so that we can love others. And that's a really important thing to emphasize as we talked about faith and hope are infused virtues. They're gifts that are given to us, but they also sort of need to be cultivated, and they're not merely for us to hold on to. So, you know, in the episode, for instance, about hope, we talked about, or I talked about how hope becomes a fuel for evangelization, and love also becomes a fuel for not just evangelization, but for, in fact, loving others. So there's there's actually in the in the Bible there's different ways different words that are used um, in in the Hebrew and in the Greek to that are translated in English as love, and Benedict um, talks about um, two particular examples. So there's eros and agape, and he says that it's really important for us to get a good grounding in, in the relationship and actually the unity between this Greek word eros, which can be translated as love. And this other Greek word, agape, which can be translated also as love. He says usually people tend to see eros as having, you know, because of its, its semantic roots, something to do with erotic love, with, with attraction, physical attraction. Um, that's, that's the dominant way people tend to think about the word today. Um, when you talk about eros, it's like, oh, that has something to do with something being erotic. Um, so that, that has certain connotations, and, and people think, oh, that's sort of like maybe a lower form of love. Um, and he also says in the history of Greek philosophy, this, this eros concept of love um, was often understood to mean love as an overpowering kind of force, and, and not necessarily in a, in a purely good kind of way, but that w- the experience of being totally overwhelmed 
overpowered, losing your rational faculties, losing your control, losing your self-control, your sense of self over some attraction to something, right? And and typically something of the flesh, right? This this is is often you know connected um, with uh, different pagan religions, which which practice fertility cults cultic prostitution, that sort of thing. He said this is, you know, one way of looking at eros, um, and it is and it is common. There are a lot of, you know, proponents of this view of, of eros is about these sorts of things. It's, it's, it's irrational. It, it, it is just overpowering, and, and it's only about really the body and its desires, and, it, and it's um, uh, satiating your, your body's desires for pleasure. And in that sort of worldview, love or eros becomes mostly about the body and not so much about the person. And he said the danger there is to think that that's the only form of love is one danger. And another danger, which is often related to it, is to say that, you know, okay, that's a kind of love, but but really we need to reject that because it's too much about the body. So Benedict has this really interesting conversation about eros, or this erotic kind of love, and agape, which is a more grounded, self-giving love that willing or choosing the good of the other is, is one way to kind of look at agape. And, and when you distinguish these two, you know, eros is erotic and agape is choosing the good of the other. He says it's really easy to make it see like to make it seem like the one, eros, has nothing at all to do with the other, agape. And Benedict actually wants to say that's not the case. Um, and historically, you know, critics of Christianity have have argued that the, the Christian church wants to erase eros, wants to erase passion and desire, and just kind of put people into this lane where they're making an intellectual decision to choose the good of others. And that's agape, that's Christian love, but it's not full. And Benedict wants to say, <laughs> we don't have to choose between a self-giving love and something that's passionate and, and you know, stirs up desire. But actually, those two should be fused together. So I want to read um, a, a couple of paragraphs throughout the, throughout the episode, but but one right here is the fifth paragraph. And I want to read this whole paragraph from the encyclical and kind of comment along the way so you can see how he tries to kind of relate these two. And 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 I think it'll, it'll make it a little bit more clear. So he says in, in paragraph five of Deus Caritas, asked, nowadays, Christianity, Christianity of the past is often criticized as having been opposed to the body. And it is quite true that tendencies of this sort have always existed. And I appreciate Benedict's honesty in saying that, yeah, there have been Christians who have pushed in that way. But it's not, he wants to say, it's not fundamental to the view of Christianity that we have to be opposed to the body. Listen to how he follows up. Yet, the contemporary way of exalting the body is deceptive. So what he's saying is, in critiques of Christianity, you hear this claim that Christians don't like the body, but we do, and, and we're, we have this healthy view of the importance of the body. So you should do what we're doing and not like Christians that want to reject the body. He says, yeah, but the way that people tend to so-called exalt the body is actually very deceptive. So he continues, Eros, reduced to pure sex, has become a commodity, a mere thing to be bought and sold, or rather man himself becomes a commodity. This is hardly man's great yes to the body. So he's, he's saying here, and remember, he's writing in 2005, which now is 17 years ago, 
that society has this idea that you got to say yes to the body to be a healthy, integrated human being. You can't be, be you know, rejecting the body. And, and the claim is Christianity wants you to reject the body, but we want to tell you your body's good and you should accept it. And he says, actually, what society promotes as accepting the body has turned sexual intimacy into a commodity, something that can be bought and sold, and even people can be bought and sold, and that when we go all the way in that direction, we're hardly saying yes to the body. We're actually doing something different. He continues, on the contrary, man now considers his body and his sexuality as the purely material part of himself to be used and exploited at will. Nor does he see it as an area for the exercise of his freedom, but as a mere object that he attempts, as he pleases, to make both enjoyable and harmless. Here we are actually dealing with a debasement of the human body. No longer is it integrated into our overall existential freedom. No longer is it a vital expression of our whole being but it is more or less relegated to the purely biological sphere. Benedict is trying to really kind of make it plain to us that when you take this Eros idea and you want to run all the way with that and you, and you want to say any kind of restraint, any kind of purification of that desire is a rejection of who you are, he said, that's, that's really dangerous because if you pretend that all you've got to do is listen to your passions and your desires, follow that all the way through, and there's nothing else you need to do, it actually becomes not a liberating thing, but something that sort of enslaves you. It, it, it diminishes your dignity. And I, I, this line really shook me as I was preparing for this podcast. He says, the apparent exaltation of the body can quickly turn into a hatred of bodiliness. That's really prescient, really prophetic, that when we just say we're going to do whatever the body wants without any restraint, without any connection to a greater vision of what love could be, it actually can lead you to reject the body itself. And in the history of Christianity, we saw this in Gnosticism. This is what St. Augustine was dealing with, was surrounded him, the culture that he was very closely associated with, kind of almost went completely in that direction. He never completely joined the Manichaean sect, which is a, a Gnostic sect that, that looked at the body in this sort of way, but it's very dangerous. So, Benedict says, the response, Christian faith, on the other hand, has always considered man a unity, a duality, a reality in which spirit and matter co-penetrate, and in which each is brought to a new nobility. So true eros, he says, tends to rise in ecstasy towards the divine, to lead us beyond ourselves. So Benedict is saying eros, passion, desire, right? Even the desire, as it may be experienced, to sort of possess, you know, if you meet your, your future spouse and you, know, you just, you'd want to be with them all the time. You want to, in a sort of way, you want to possess them. Not in like an all-encompassing way, like you're just going to do whatever I tell you, but like you don't want anyone else, anyone else to have them. You want to, like this, you're mine, right? That normal human experience, Benedict wants to say, that is actually supposed to kind of give us the start to go in the right direction, 
but it's call it's it's also a call to lead us beyond it. So he says, true eros tends to rise in ecstasy towards the divine, to lead us beyond ourselves. And for this very reason, it calls for a path of ascent, right? So to to higher and higher goods, not just the pleasure of the body, but the good of the person. It calls us to renunciation, to purification, and to healing. To, to healing some of that that wounded human nature that merely wants or that merely has desires that merely has passion. So Benedict says this eros form of love, which seeks and tends toward ecstasy, often through the body in marriage, is incomplete on its own. It needs to lead to a more self-sacrificial form of love, characterized by seeking the good of the other by an exclusivity, right? You can only have this true and meaningful love with one person, and by permanence. And it's really fascinating as a, as a fan of Fulton Sheen. Um, Fulton Sheen wrote a book on marriage called Three to Get Married, which is actually why we have our marriage retreats in the diocese. They're called Three to Get Married because of that book. He actually addresses a lot of this in the book. He says that Eros and Agape it's not that we we need to get rid of eros altogether. He said God gave us this sort of passionate desire for others, for 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 fulfillment, for even for for joy, for pleasure, so that it would help us to find the person that we were going to give ourselves to forever. So it get us out of just I'm seeking anything to I found the one, and now we're together going to purify this eros into something. Fulton Sheen has this beautiful reflection um, in, in that book about the sort of the stages of, of life and the stages of marriage and the way that it purifies love. And it's really, really just beautiful. He says that in the early years of marriage, a lot of the physical intimacy is kind of the, the grounding of, of where the relationship is, is, is. And you experience all of this pleasure, all of this joy, this, you know, I mean, th- this ecstasy, but that that's not going to be what the marriage looks like 60 years down the road. That if you think your whole married life is going to be about the ecstasy of the marital act and this beautiful thing that it is, and you don't have a deeper love that's being rooted and built up, 60 and 70 years down down the road, you know, I mean, if you're married 70 years, that's a really long time, but 40, 50 years, you're, you're not going to be having that same kind of experience. You're going to have to have a much deeper much much broader grounding in love and, and the good of the other. Um, and, and Pope Benedict XVI is saying much the same thing here, that that eros needs to lead to a sacrificial, other grounded kind of love. Um, and so he, he kind of defines the terms in this way. He says, eros is a worldly love. It's, it's the here and now, and that's good. But agape is a love that's grounded in and shaped by faith. And he also talks about the ladder of ascent in Jacob's ladder when there's angels going up and down, that the mystics of the church have interpreted that as, as a vision of God's love for, for us and our love for God, and that there's a, a sense in which eros is a, a, a love that, that, that receives, and agape is a love that gives. So there's ascending and descending, or giving and receiving. And he says, in the Christian life, you need both of those. Nobody can only be giving love without ever receiving any of it. And of course, one of the things that grounds us all is we're, we're all receiving love from God. So that doesn't mean human beings need to love other human beings and every now and then just take their turn to receive it. That, that actually, a saintly thing might be to give love to someone and never receive it from them. But Benedict is saying, 
if we're not receiving love from God, we can't pour ourselves out in service to others and just constantly do that. He talks about St. Teresa of Calcutta, um, you know, having this, this, this notion of the link between contemplation and action. So St. Teresa of Calcutta was able to go out and love people, not just because she was like a really good person, but because she was pouring, she was drinking deeply of the well of God's love in prayer and the sacraments and adoration, and that allowed her to go out and then give that love to other people. Um, and one of the things that's really beautiful uh, about, uh, about this concept is you see this in the Scriptures. God describes himself as a God who loves his people, and the imagery that's used, especially in the Old Testament, is really poetic and beautiful. This So in the, in the prophet Hosea, um, Hosea is told you know, that God is basically going to punish Israel for its infidelity, its unfaithfulness. But it's, it's all framed as a marital relationship where Israel has been betrothed to God, supposed to marry you know, God, consummate that marriage, but instead is consummating with other gods, worshiping other gods. So idolatry is seen in the Old Testament sort of as a form of adultery against the nuptial God that wants to enter into this mystical marriage with them. And in, in the book of the prophet Hosea, God is saying to Israel, I'm going to purify you from your false loves of all these other gods. So he's actually punishing, taking away some of the good things that Israel has received at the hands of these basically adulterous relationships. You're going to re, you know, your prosperity is going to be removed. You're going to actually suffer and be alone. And he says, and it's really beautiful, and it's, you know, we could do a whole hour on just this. He wants to take Israel out into the desert, purify it of everything else, and help it remember who's the one that led you out of slavery in Egypt. It was me. And so he's, it's, it's this beautiful thing of God taking the Israelites back out into the desert where he initially was able to set them free. Uh, one of my scripture professors, uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, said in, in a lecture on this, it would be like taking your wife back to the place where you had your first date, but not just doing that. After you've had a big fight, maybe there was some, I mean, maybe there's adultery, but even if it's just a normal argument and you've been kind of cold shoulder and silent treatment and you want to kind of remember who you are and what you're about, maybe you go back to the place where you first met. You go back to the place of your first date, go back to where you got married or something to try and kind of rekindle that romance. And actually, this is what Hosea is describing God is doing with Israel. He is a God who loves them so much that he wants to give them, give himself entirely to Israel. And even when they have been unfaithful and they've wounded that relationship, God still wants to pour out that love and wants to kind of re- help them remember who they are and, and what this relationship is supposed to be. And it's, it's a really powerful thing because, as, as Benedict argues, God is, even in the Old Testament, in particular in this example of Hosea, God is loving Israel so much in the in spite of their weaknesses and many many failures and all of these sort of adulterous relationships with other gods that he is hurting himself because justice should demand that like no Israel's just going to be punished they're not going to be punished and then they get to have you know this this relationship again they've broken it justice would seem to demand well you lost it but God loves himself enough. Loves, sorry, he loves himself. God loves us enough 
that he's willing to continue to extend that love towards us even when we have betrayed it. And that is a prefigurement of the cross. And so this is another excerpt from uh, the encyclical paragraph 12. Of course, Benedict is now talking about Jesus and love in the New Testament. He says, His death on the cross is the culmination of that turning of God against himself, in which he gives himself in order to raise man up and save him. This is love in its most radical form. By contemplating the pierced side of Christ, we can understand the starting point of this encyclical letter, John, uh, which is God is love, uh, 1 John 4, verse 8. It is there that this truth must be contemplated, namely at the cross. It's at the cross where we can really understand what it means to say that God is love. That's where he really pours himself out. And scholars will say, you know, the cross is a nuptial image. The, the, the cross is actually a, a marriage uh, between God and his people. It is there that this truth must be contemplated. It is from there that our definition of love must begin. In this contemplation, the Christian discovers the path along which his life and love must move. And so there's plenty more to this encyclical. Um, I mean, we really only even talked about the first half of it. The second half um, focuses on the church's action in the world as an expression of the love that God gives us. Very beautiful stuff. But but just to, to sort of wrap, wrap up the series here on, on these theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, right? At the beginning of the encyclical, of this encyclical, Benedict says, we believe in the love that God has for us. We believe in the fact that God loves us. That's a, that's a movement of faith. To believe in God is a gift of faith. Because we believe in God, because we have this faith in him, it gives us hope to endure our temporal realities, all the difficulties and pains and struggles that we have to go through because of, of sin and because of weakness and, and evil, are bearable because of the, the, the hope that we have of a better future, right? And that, that hope of the future makes the present tolerable and is grounded in the past of what God's saving action has been for his people. So faith allows us to have hope, and ultimately hope allows us to have love, but we can only have love because God's given it to us first. And when we have that love, we're called to share it with others, to model Christ on the cross, to model God in the Old Testament where he loves even when it costs him, even when it wounds him. So I hope you've enjoyed this series on the virtues. There is, believe me, plenty, plenty more that we could have said and could have discussed. Uh, but but if you if you want to really dig in deeper, I really recommend especially these three encyclicals, uh, Lumen Fidei, which is the encyclical on faith. Benedict and Francis wrote that together. Then uh, Space Alvi, written on hope by Pope Benedict and Deus Caritas S, which is God is Love. And that's actually the opposite order in which they were written. So God is Love, Deus Caritas S was first, Space Alvi was second, Lumen Fidei was third. Uh, but definitely check those encyclicals out if you want to kind of read more. Um, there's also a great book by Joseph Pieper, which I talked a lot about in the first episode in this series um, on the three uh, theological virtues. And there's plenty more stuff out there, but hopefully this has been a helpful introduction for you. Um, thanks for sticking with us, and God bless you.